Well, our series this morning that we want to be stop starting for the next few weeks, we won't be going in very, very long detail in regards to this, but there are some things certainly we need to be dealing with. But let's look in. I just want to begin this morning by reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. This is the uh, one of the larger passages dealing with the office of deacon, and in particular here, not so much what they do, but who they are to be. In other words, here are the qualifications that are set down for those who are to hold the office of deacon in the church of our Lord Jesus. And we'll begin in verse 8. The Verse 1 speaks of the qualifications of the elders or the bishop or pastors, as we would call them here in America, and uh, ministers, if you please. Uh, he says there in verse 1, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. There's no shame in desiring this. And uh, the point of this, though, the men who may desire that, how are they uh, qualified? And here Paul then begins to tell Timothy here, beginning in verse 2, certain characteristics, holy living aspects that this man who desires the office of a bishop or pastor is to have. And we see that from verses 2, even into verse 8. Though I realize it begins talking about deacons there, but if you'll notice, it says, Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, so forth. In other words, he's still relating that back to some of the things that were spoken of in relationship to the office of the pastor. Well, this morning, though, we want to deal in the main with the office of deacon. So let's read. This is just to kind of get us going. And then we're going to turn to Acts 6, where we see something of the function of the deacons and the occasion of their office being implanted, as it were, into the church of the Lord Jesus. So let's read this first of all. And then we'll turn here in a little bit after I give some introductory uh, remarks. First of all, he says, likewise, in verse 8, likewise, must the deacons be grave not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. It means money. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Now, the, also there's relation back to the elders, the men who desire the office of that. So you can see again how that the elders spill over in this as far as the qualifications are concerned. We're not just to let any body come into the office of the eldership without being first proved. And it's true with the deacons as well, he says. Let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. So it even goes into his household, we see. Verse 12, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Well, those are what we would call the qualifications for the office of deacon. If men are to be presented unto the elders for ordination into this particular office, these are the things then that we must be able to see, see demonstrated in their walk, in their life, before we would lay our hands upon them and install them into the office of deacon. So, 
It is important, and thus we want to look at this in the coming weeks. But that was just to get us going. What I'd like to see, first of all, is the purpose of our study upon this subject. You may say, well, why are we dealing with this? I know you dealt with this, I think, back in 2004. Well, first of all, here's one of the reasons. Well, we are a bit bigger or a bit larger, and thus we, uh, there are some things that need to be cared for. It's true, while we don't, for instance, own this property here, we are responsible for some of the upkeep. The lawn, the cleaning of the building, and other things that can very easily be looked over, uh, overlooked if we're not careful. Well, these types of responsibilities don't fall upon the elder. They actually fall upon those who are in the office of deacon. And so, here again, we want to see then, if someone is interested in the office of deacon here, or we may think, Someone needs to be interested in the office of deacon because, again, it is the church who chooses these, bre- these brethren, sets them forth, as it were. Then they need to know and we need to know what are then some of the basic responsibilities of those who are in the office. Also, we have more folks. Thus, there is a need of knowing them so, so it can be determined regarding their needs. If we go back to Acts 6 here as we a little bit, we were, one of the reasons why the deacons were put into the church was to take care of the tables because of the widows who were being neglected. Well, men in this office need to be able to recognize such things about the brethren, the needs. They just can't come and, and uh, have their, their eyes, as it were, shut to the responsibilities and the duties of their office, as well as to the needs of the brethren. We want folks who will, as it were, have their eyes open and to be able to discern these things. They got to be able to talk. They got to be able to enter into conversations so that they will know whether there is a need in the church or not. So, there again. Secondly, we're in need of help in this office. And thus, as I said, I'm hoping that the Lord will use this so that we, slash you, uh, will look out among yourselves qualified men to serve in this office. Thirdly, to inform us, but obviously, of the nature of this office. What does it entail? What is the, uh, as they call it today, the job description of those who hold this office. What will they be doing? What should they be doing? Who should hold such an office and etc. Things like that. So it's to inform here. Fourthly, it's to stir up those who are in the office already uh, to labor perhaps more faithfully in this calling. You know, again, we all need that encouragement. We all need to be stirred up to do it. That's why, again, I have no bones about going to the Bible and preaching about the duties of the pastor. It's not so that you'll know yours to submit to me. That's not the reason I really teach why we does think. But again, it does show the responsibilities of the office holder. And it, as it were, we're held accountable by you. You know, if you if I lay out the scriptures, what I'm supposed to be doing, and then I don't do them. Well, I hope you would have the grace to say, come along aside and say, well, I may not know the whole story here, but it seems maybe this is being neglected or are you doing these things? I'm not trying to judge you, not trying to put more on you than you that's necessary. But here it is. And then I can say, well, I am doing it. You just don't see it or blah, 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 such as that. And so this is the same aspect with the deacon. We want to set out these things so that men who are in the office and those who are outside of the office can have an idea. And that, again, is very helpful to keep us faithful in our duties. If if you know what my responsibilities are, then obviously 
I'll know that and I won't say, well, I can get away with this. I can get away with that. I won't be able to get away with it, will I? Because you'll be a folks who are, who are, I hope, are in, who are, uh, encouraged to look to these things in a right way and to do what's right. And then, fifthly, and this is one of the reasons why there is the office of elder, or excuse me, the office of deacon in the church, is to relieve the elders to do the work in which they are called to do. Now, this sounds almost self-serving, and this is, but this, again, is not what I'm trying to get at. But the fact of the matter is, the office of deacon exists in order that the elders or the pastors or bishops can do their work, which is not to mow the yard and to make sure the building's up cake, make sure everything's turned on and the door's unlocked. That's not the elders' responsibility. That is the responsibility of these men who have been called into office to allow them to be busy about the labors that they ought to be busy about. And this is where we'll turn then to the book of Acts, chapter 6. And we want to begin this morning then looking at something of the nature of the office. And I bring this text in, first of all, because this is what is first seen as far as the history of this office is concerned. Now, I realize as we turn to 1 Timothy 3, we saw something of it there, but that's years later than what we're looking at here in Acts 6. Paul pins that letter pretty much just before he's uh, about ready to die. So we're looking at a lot of years between Acts 6 and 1 and 2 Timothy. And then reality, there's not very much information given to us other than these two places and then one more in the book of Philippians where Paul writes to the bishops and the deacons and to the brethren there at Philippi. So the data, as we would say, isn't all that full as far as this office is concerned. But because of the nature of this office, it's easy then to see what their responsibilities are. And thus then we'll derive some of the the information we need. So we're going to be looking this morning, first of all, just the beginning in this, and I'll go until it's time to stop. The nature of the office of deacon. Let's go to Acts 6, if you would, and we'll look at it here. I'll... Go ahead and tell you now, the word deacon is not found here, but the word diakonos is. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. The Lord Jesus was considered diakonos because he was a servant, and that is what the word means. So as we look to this office, first of all, before I begin to read, we'll see that the word deacon, as we saw it back there in 1 Timothy 3, what does it mean? What does the word deacon mean? As I said, it's from the Greek word diakonos. It just simply means a servant, one who ministers, one who serves. And in particular, uh, according to the lexicons, it's someone who runs errands. That would be the etymology of the word. It's someone who runs errands. And you know what that would be like. You hand someone an envelope and you say, hey, go take that to the post office for me. Well, that's the kind of idea that this word here means in this sense of it being a servant or a deacon. It's, uh, it's a nature then that the office then entails servitude. And I don't mean they're put into bondage and that sort of thing. But it's an office that entails one being a servant to others. Both to the church as well as to, in particular, the elders from reason why they're in the office is to relieve them to do the work that the elders need to do. So it is an office 
that entails servitude. Now, it's true. Every one of us, by nature, as Christians, are servants. Even the Lord Jesus, you remember, as I said, was a servant. He tells us in Matthew 20, verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. That's the word diakonos there. And to give his life a ransom for many. Well, there you have it. The Lord Jesus. Not that he was in the office of a deacon, because he was the Messiah. That was his office. He was the mediator. But he was doing the work of one. That is, he was a servant. Now, so in that sense, all of us then are servants. All of us are, just to say the word, are deacons, though we may not hold the office of deacon. And this is why I have made it a policy, if I'm ever to lay hands on anyone going into this office, if they're not already serving in this church, they might as well forget about being a deacon. Because I want to see folks who are in this office who are already serving the brethren. Because just in the nature of being a Christian, we are servants. So if someone wants to say, I want the office of a deacon, and he's just been a pew warmer for the last few years, well, he actually has no hope of being that in this church. Now, he may make it somewhere else, but he will not make it here. Because we want to see someone who have been tested Proved, do you remember back in 1 Timothy 3, proved into this office that they can do the work that they've been called to in the office of a deacon. Now, there is to be in a mature gospel church those who hold the office of deacon. Philippians 1.1, as we quoted a while ago, found we saw that uh, there is both a plurality of bishops or pastors in a church and there is a plurality of of deacons, because he says it in the plural. We'll even see here in Acts 6, they chose seven men to be doing those particular labors. Now, the point of that is you obviously you pick the men that are needed uh, for the work. We don't need seven deacons if there's only seven members. That would be silly, wouldn't it? You would just need the amount that was necessary. And so these men, as Christians... As who are in this office, they serve not only in their everyday run-of-the-mill Christian life, as we're all to be servants one of another, but they suddenly become the public service. That is, there are some things you and I just shouldn't let our left hand know what the right hand's doing, right? That's just not right. But deacons have the ability then to be able to stand out, as it were, and men are to see them laboring and faithfully in this office. And so they're like the public servants, as we would call it here. And so they hold a public office of deacon or as a servant. And so they're to be the benevolent servitude of the church of our Lord Jesus. Okay, well, those are the introductory remarks. First, let's go now to Acts 6, and we'll see the occasion or the reason as to why this office was set forth. It says here, beginning in verse 1, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. So you had two factions going on. Because, here's the reason, that their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called, that's the twelve apostles, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason or 
meet or right, as we would say today. It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying, notice this, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and uh, Prochorus, and uh, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, that is, the church did. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, that is, the apostles did. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, we see something here of not only of the occasion as to why they're brought up, but even some more qualifications of the office of deacon. And again, Paul is going to explain all of this about being full of the Holy Ghost, full of faith, when we come to 1 Timothy 3. That will be the interpretation then of verse 5. So we see need to look at that again more carefully when we look at the qualifications that will be led. So we see here that the twelve, we notice in verse 2, called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, it's not reason that we should leave the word, and notice this, and serve tables. He says our job, as we see in verse 4, as Pastors, elders, uh, and apostles here at this point is to give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So, in other words, our responsibilities over the flock, he says here, are spiritual in nature, not the physical and the temporal things. So we need some men then who are going to fill the gap, as it were, who are going to take care of those physical realities that need to be taken care of. They didn't want to neglect these things. He actually says, no, we're going to appoint some brethren who are going to take care of this great need. So it wasn't like, oh, it doesn't matter, we're, we're pastors and we're too important for any of this. That's not what he's saying at all. We think this is important. This faction that is going on, this, um, this uh, murmuring does need to cease. And so one of the ways that this will be taken care of then is to solve the problem by putting men in this office who will take care of it. The word serve there in verse 2 is the word for deacon in 1 Timothy 3 verse 10. So that's why some folks here do believe that this passage is dealing with the office of deacon. Uh, again, I think you have to be careful with that. But it does seem they do have the acunate responsibilities here when we come to this particular passage. So we're going to assume then, and we hope rightly, that this is a passage that is dealing with the at least uh, prototype office of the office of deacon. You notice in verse 6, verse 1, the word ministration. Again, it's from the same idea, deacon. Same form of the Greek word for deacon. Six, verse six, chapter 6, verse 4, when he talks about the ministry of the word, well, guess what word it is? It's the same word for deacon once again. We're to serve, he says, as uh, apostles, we're to serve the word. They, on the other hand, the deacons, are to serve the tables. 
Those are two distinct things. One is the Word of God and prayer, obviously, and the other is tables. So there's the difference. There's the dichotomy in this office. The deacons are not to take oversight of the church. That's the problem in many Baptist, in fact, many churches, period. It's that deacons want to run things. They've been known as the pillar of the churches. They're the first to tell everyone how to run things. But in reality, their job is simply to serve tables. They're not giving any spiritual oversight in the Word of God at all. That is left to those who labor in the Word, those who have been qualified for this particular aspect of their calling. So, remember again, the Word has to do with serving and not with ruling, according to 1 Timothy 3, as well as verse 13. So, we're going to look now at Acts 6, 1 through 7. We see then the beginning, or the why, of the elections to this office. We see, first of all, it was a matter of the function of the leadership and then the church as a whole to take care of this business. It wasn't the church who jumped up and said, look, we have great idea here. I think you need to create an office, you elders. Uh, we're not satisfied how things are running, so look, you need to do this. That's not how it happened. Now, it's true, there was some murmuring and some grumbling going on, but it was the apostles, it was the leadership of the church who stepped up first. They were the ones who had the oversight. They were the ones who filled out, as it were, the program how this was to work. It wasn't the brethren themselves. It was the apostles. It was the leadership of the church. We see in verse 1 of Acts 6, it says, In those days, that is, it was during the days of, of tremendous great growth of the church there at, at uh, Jerusalem, uh, you remember there were 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. There are another 2,000 saved a little bit longer. And some have estimated as much as 10,000 believers existed in the city of Jerusalem, thus then becoming a part of this church. Not only that, this was a church that was not only beset with a lot of numbers, it was a church that was beset with a lot of persecution. Chapter 5 uh, we see that there was a context there of persecution going on. So this is a church quite busy, growing, being persecuted, uh, needs going on. And so these things were, the, this, is, this is what was happening in those days. That's an important phrase there, in those days that were taking place. But it was in this particular time of persecution and church growth, there was some problems that arose. There is a murmuring. Now, murmuring is a serious sin. God killed tens of thousands of people, His people, back in the Old Testament, for their murmuring. So God doesn't put up with our griping. He doesn't like it. It's not honorable to God. And we see this going on here. Now, some may say, well, I think they had right to murmur. Well, it was a right that suddenly quit because they fixed the problem. So if you want to say that they had right to murmur, well, you go right ahead. But it got fixed quickly. It wasn't allowed to continue because they get on this pretty quick. He says there's a murmuring that arose among the, the Grecians against the Hebrews. And here's the murmuring what it was about. Because their widows, that is the Grecian widows, were neglected in the daily ministration. So in the early church, there were basically, at least in Jerusalem, there were two classes of people, so to speak. There were the Grecians 
Those were probably the Jews who had lived outside of Palestine and came back and decided to settle there. We see some of those, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And then, of course, there were the Hebrews who were there in the land itself. And we see the reason of the murmuring, as we said, because the widows, that is, the Grecian widows, were being neglected in the daily ministration. The Grecian widows were being overlooked. Now, whether this was purposeful or whether it was just a mere oversight, we don't know. But either way, it was taking place. The apostles were busy. They, I mean, 5,000 plus people in the church. You can imagine that those apostles and those elders were very busy. They were trying to bring them into the idea of a new covenant. They had been so used to Moses and the law, they didn't know anything about Christ, as it were, in the New Testament sense. And so here they're having to teach and to preach in in the midst of all of this persecution. And they were also watching over the tables. So they were quite busy. You may say, well, what's the daily ministration? Well, from verse 2, it seems to have been the activity surrounding the tables where supplies were given out. Back in Acts 4, in verse 35, it says, and they, uh, here we see, verse 34, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. Apparently, apostles were the treasurers at that day. And, uh, and dist- distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. So not only were they preaching and being persecuted, but when people came and gave, they laid, as it says here, at the apostles' feet. They, by that phrase there, it didn't really mean they put them right there at their toes. But the idea that the <coughs> excuse me, the apostles were in charge. When you have your feet on something, that means you're so like today you think you have your thumb on it, uh, you're in charge, you're taking control of it. Uh, well, that phrase is not used in the scripture. The idea of the feet being there is that same kind of a connotation. The elders were responsible for it. And so from that, then the distribution, it says there to every man was made according they had need. So the apostles were not only preaching, they were looking out and seeing who had to have their livelihood taken care of, the widows taken care of, and such as that. Well, apparently it got overrun with too many people. Chapter 5, verse 2, we see something of that again. And kept back, uh, this is Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, They kept back part of the service, he says in verse 2, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part. And what did they do with it? They laid it at the apostles' feet to be distributed now. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira got into a little trouble here, but that's not the case that we're going to look at this morning. But the point of that is, where was the money taken to? It was taken to the apostles who were doing all sorts of things, overseeing the flock, both apparently now spiritually and physically. And so it got to the point as we come to chapter 6 here that there are some things that are just being overlooked and cannot be taken care of. Now, so there were some widows who were missing out. And it happens to be the Grecian widows who were doing So this created then a murmuring. My, my mother is not being taken. Or my sister, who's a widow, is not being taken. So there was this murmuring. There were probably some hard feelings against the Hebrews. Obviously, it says Grecians against the Hebrews. And so this then is the problem. Now, it's a serious problem. 
A very serious problem. Because it was the care of the people of God to care for that sort of thing. In fact, you go to Deuteronomy. He said, Cursed be he that perverteth the judgment of the stranger, fatherless, and widow. And they all agree and say, Amen. So this was not a little matter. This was an important thing. So, not only was it a common thing that the people of God assembled, took care of other folks within that assembly, but it was an important fact. In fact, as we'll see this morning and when we get into James, we'll learn that this is a necessary part of real religion. Your religion is vain if we're not doing this. So, it's not a little matter, is it? It's a big matter. In fact, when we get to 1 Timothy 5, again, years later after this point, we even see how that it is to be regulated, that is, the caring for widows in the New Testament church. It actually has become now settled law, as it were, with the church itself and how that these things, the widows in particular, are to be taken care of. There are qualifications that a widow is to have to determine whether she can be taken care of. By the church. And so those are things dealt with in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But at this point, again, this is all new as far as the church dealing with these issues. And as it is with a a small church, it's kind of like the pastor does everything. He's the one who does just from the moment he, he preaches until the whatever. He's taking care of all these things. And it would seem to be that's what was going on here at Jerusalem. Except this was no small church. Thousands were in this church. So the occasion that of this going on then we need to realize is not a small matter. These widows needed to be taken care of. And not only that, it was causing a dissension in the church. It was causing disunity. And that, my friend, is a serious thing. Now from that then we look in verse 2 and we see that the leadership now takes notice. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So the murmuring has come to their attention. Whether someone gave them notice or whether they noticed it themselves as they were going out and overseeing the flock. Either way, we don't see how they knew about it. Just the fact that it came to their attention. And they say, first of all here, or what the first thing they do is they call the disciples together. They call the church together. And they tell them plainly, it's not our job. And I don't mean that in a trite way as you hear today. People wanting to get out from under things, it's responsibilities and all that. But in a sense, that's what they're saying. This isn't our job. Our job is to serve the Word of God, not tables. It's true, we've been doing it. The apostles' feet were where all the stuff was brought and distribution was made. But that's taking us away from the calling that God has given us, and that is to serve or the Word of God. Don't, we don't want to leave that and be so caught up with the dealings of, of the physical matters of the church that we suddenly can't do the spiritual matters of the church. So they say here it's not reason. It's not reasonable. It's not logical that we would leave these things and do this. Now, notice here that the leadership takes notice of the problem. And so what they do is they call a church meeting to not to really to discuss the situation, 
They called the meeting to settle the situation. Look at verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. They weren't asking for opinions. They were giving theirs. This is what needs to be done. This is how we're going to remedy this problem of Grecian women being neglected. And thus from that, the murmuring. And to relieve us to do what we need to be doing. Well, that's as far as I can get. We're out of time. So we'll pick up then with uh, verse 3 and go into some of the things that they have decided that is to be done in this office. And uh, hopefully get some more ideas again about the nature of this office. So we'll dismiss or bust that and the Lord will pick it up next time.